0: Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles. turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 8, Song of Solomon 8. I don't know really what we're going to do tonight. Um, uh, I mean, I've got enough here to keep us busy, but uh, given that we we spent so much time, Proverbs uh, 8 and 9, the the Lady Wisdom passage, I I thought it was worthwhile since we're looking at Solomon in the morning to explore some of his other writings. And uh, among those is, of course, Song of Solomon, one of my favorite books. Bible, uh, and uh, I think it's worth exploring. A lot that I have here, we've, we've we've already looked at a lot of this, particularly looking at the book as a whole, but there is a part of Solomon, Song of Solomon here, Song of Songs, that I think is worth looking at from a different perspective. So, so I want to introduce some things that I'm still figuring it out, um, and so maybe we can Go on this journey together. So if, if if I got to cut out half my notes and we just go home, that's fine. Uh, but so I actually want to do, um, you've probably learned over the years, I like a good climax. And in a sermon, Jesus is the climax. He's always the climax. Um, so if you can think, a te- if you convince people the text is about X and you really show them it's about Jesus, it makes the X even more glorious. That's, that's sort of the way I approach it often. Um, I want to do the opposite. I actually want to get to Jesus really fast, and then if we have time, I'll show you how it looks like in the book. Um, so we'll just see how this goes. Is that all right? It may be more of a Bible study used to, but we're going to talk about Jesus from the world's greatest love song. In fact, we call it the Song of Love Songs. All right, with that, if you will stand with me out of Rev. God's Word, Song of Solomon chapter eight. We will begin in verse 11, go to the very end. Um, um, we, we won't be exegeting this. We, I just want to see if you, if you can pick up on some of the things mentioned here at the conclusion of the song that we will be highlighting as it relates to Christ, or at least to the gospel. Song of Psalms chapter 8, verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to the keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver my vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit of two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. Go to Lord in prayer. And Father, we, we are looking at a text here that is uh, often overlooked, um, often to our own shame. Um, and it gives us a picture that we are missing as a society of of the function and the beauty of intimacy and love. Uh, help us to recapture that, particularly in a world that has gone mad. But we actually worship at the idol of eros, and therefore we have made a mess of love. So, Lord, as always, open our entire being that we may see Your Word, believe in it as true, and be transformed by it. May I decrease so You can increase. In the name so we pray. Amen. There's a meme that I've seen uh, really by accident, but I think it's, it is instructive. Um, and it compares a classic love song with a more modern, uh, for lack of a better term, love song. Uh, the first clip is of the song uh, Put Your Head on My Shoulder by Paul Anka. Am I pronouncing that right? Look at there. Right. I know the song. I don't know the artist. You, like, I'm pushing 40, so I am plenty old enough, and I don't know the artist. I'm sorry. Uh, but um, uh, I, I do know the song well. We all know the song well. Put Your Head on My Shoulder. It is a classic love song when you hear it, uh, just the chorus itself. It is a, 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 a great line to, to demonstrate uh, the beauty of uh, relational Love, right? Um, I mean, it takes you back to your dating days, right? It may take you back that last night you were finally watching the Mario Brothers movie and you just laid that head on your husband's shoulder, didn't you? I don't know what, what it is that you're, you're watching. Just Mario's came, came to mind. I thought it'd be funny to mention it. Well, that's the first clip you get of this meme, right? It would say something like, love songs of the past, right? And and it, it plays it. And you're thinking, yeah, I remember that. Those are love songs. And then it cuts to a more modern song that is... Um, Uh, taken from, I assume, countless other graphic songs where men are aggressively sexualizing their female audience. Obviously, I can't repeat these words or what is there. I trust that if you have had a radio on or walked into a clothing store or something, you have heard some of these songs. They are graphic. They are grotesque. And, and how you can rationalize the liberation of women that feminism has promised us and the sexualization of women and somehow say that they are one and the same on the same side, I will never, never understand it. But the part of the, the, the meme that really sticks out to me is it highlights where we've gone as a culture. But these aren't Christians putting this out here. This is just, these, these are just people within our culture, and, and, and it highlights just how vile, sexualized We have become and how really women are the victims of it. A society that sings of the beauty of love is better than a society that sings and celebrates the violence of sex. That should be obvious. And what we have here is a song of love. It is not an erotic song though it has scenes of intimacy within it. It fits within a broader context of marital love, of intimacy. It is, the, the couple go through, through, there's a whole story here that we've looked at in, in, in the past. So, so we are rightly appalled at the degradation of our society, which has replaced proper worship of the creator-redeemer, with the lesser God of sex. I would say that there is another problem here, is that we have failed as Christians to adequately celebrate the beauty of marital love. Even when we say that intimacy should be limited to, to marriage and marriage is good, we often put marriage on a back burner to things like money, career, opportunity, so on and so forth. Look, I've been the victims of that. My wife and I got married, we were 21, still in school. And I've told people all the time, I actually mentioned this the other day, uh, talking to people that one of my biggest regrets in life is I didn't marry that girl from Carroll County a little sooner. For one, we would have gotten more money from Fastville. I'm not gonna lie. That, that is one thing I now know that would have been a nice benefit. But really the challenges we had of our first uh, year of marriage would have been the same had we married a year or two before and we were right in the thick of college. But the point is, is that we bought into the argument that the later you put off marriage, the better you will be. And Christians are the ones often putting that out. And then we find a book in the Bible that celebrates marital love, and Christians are a bit squeamish about the descriptions that are in there. I'll never forget teaching the first time Song of Solomon. Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't Put, do it the way I did it then. I've, I've tried to learn my lesson, but i never forget uh, one of the church ladies saying, preacher, are you telling me that's in my Bible? And the answer is, of course, yes. And the fact that it bothers us should bother us. Well, how do we read Song of Solomon? We've, we've looked at this before. I want to look at these three categories really quickly. Again, we've looked at these. so A lot of this is just uh, rehash. Uh, there, there are two big ones. I want to add a third to spend a little bit of time on. And we'll see if we make it past the third. The first is, I didn't even put these up here. The first is allegorical. That is to see that God's love, or the love described here of the groom for the bride is really God's love for Israel. Or if you're a Christian, hopefully you are, if not, repent, believe the gospel. It is of Christ's love for the church. You see the allegory here. So we take the imagery of marital love, and it's really a spiritual love of Redeemer and the redeemed. Um, and so let me give you a few uh, examples that you'll find uh, in, in in like uh, uh, study Bibles that buy into this or commentaries or... Uh, 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 or Christian history that buys on this. The kiss is described in chapter one, verse two. It represents the word of God. Um, the dark skin of the girl in chapter 1, verse 5 of, of the bride represents sin. Her two lips, chapter 4, verse 11, represents the law and the gospel. The army with banners, chapter 6, verse 4, part of the most famous verse in, in uh, his banner over me is love, which isn't God's love over it? It's the love of a husband over his bride. Anyways, that represents the church as the enemy of Satan. Now, I know what you're thinking is, where, how in the world do you come up with that? Well, it begins with the notion it can't be what it seems to be about. That's uncomfortable, especially in conservative evangelical churches. We can't talk about that. So what we have to do is we have to allegorize it. I'll never forget when, uh, I, again, that the first time I was teaching on Song of Solomon, I think I spent two weeks on it, and uh, I was really excited. We were newlyweds, so you can imagine we really, really excited about this. We We just we, we had one, one little uh, boy, uh, probably not even a toddler at that point, and uh, uh, one, one of our church ladies, a different one, the, the, rather than the one that yelled at me, um, uh, she had a study Bible, right? An old King James study Bible. I don't know if it's Schofield or what it was, and uh, I gave sort of an interpretation of the poetry, and, and she goes, well, my Bible says something different. I said, well, not your Bible, it's your study Bible. Anyways, she goes, this is really about uh, Jesus' love for his bride, the church, like, Okay, <laughs> you know, but, but, but that is an allegorical reading of the text. I'm not fond of it, to be honest with you, uh, because I think you're forcing the text to say things the original authors had not intended. Now, there is some room for allegory in the Bible. Paul will use it, particularly in Galatians, when he talks about Hagar and Sarah representing two covenants. But as a general rule, I, li- I like to stay away from allegory because you're getting into some fantasy Uh, sort of ideas there. Why is the army over banners about church and the enemy of of Satan? I don't know. It just fit, I guess. There is another more, uh, I think, a better reading. That is a more literal reading of the poem. Now, remember, when we say literal, we don't mean that the bride had a neck the size of the Tower of David, right? We don't mean that literally, Right? We, we, we read from a Song of Solomon Wednesday about the palm trees, Right, that her back was like a, a palm tree. It well, doesn't mean that she's 40 foot tall and it's all spine. Right, We don't mean that literally. It fits within the, the, the genre of poetry. Much like you would read poetry within certain genre expectations, we do the same thing with Hebrew poetry. We have to read it as Hebrew poetry. doesn't mean it's always easy to figure out what in the world is going on here. For example, one of the big challenges I have and one reason I haven't gone verse by verse through the Song of Solomon here is I haven't figured out this riddle. Is it one long narrative through poetry like Paradise Lost or something like, or Beowulf or something like that? Or is it snippets here, right? So, so you, you're introduced to a dream, I think it's chapter three. A dream is mentioned in chapter five. It's really a nightmare. Do we put everything within that, within the confines of a dream or are these two different dreams? I don't know the answer to that question. Are we to read it as courtship, engagement, marriage, and after marriage? I don't know the answer to that question. I lean in that direction. But it's still a literal interpretation to see what we have here is a groom and a bride. They have periods of deep and abiding intimacy and love. They have other moments of conflict. It's almost as if a real human being uh, uh, who who has been married wrote it, right? Because it's written from someone from the inside. And so I prefer this more literal interpretation, even though it means we have to become uncomfortable with some of the content found within it. But even then, it's written in a beautiful, poetic way. Can I give you a third option that I want to spend a little more time on? Because um, we, we've done this before. The third is, I want us to consider what it has to say about the gospel. And I haven't got it all figured out yet. It does tell us something about the gospel. So instead of us climaxing with the gospel, I actually want us to start there. Song of Solomon is not an isolated book about intimacy. It fits, rather, the broader biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It fits within that biblical story. So, so I want to point out three things that keep popping up, and we see, saw them here in chapter 8. And I, I think once we go through these, you, you can peek at your Bible, you'll see some of them, right? or at least most of them here. The first is the theme of garden slash vineyards. For our purposes, I don't want to defend this thesis, but for our purposes, I think we need to see them as parallels, or synonyms would be a better term. That is that when you're describing a garden, you're describing a vineyard, at least in a theological sense. If you want a quick defense of it, you've heard me say that the story of Noah is a retelling of the creation story, creation and fall. And so you have a garden in Genesis 3 you have a vineyard in Genesis 9 with Noah. And what you have is this, this imagery of, 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 of plants and fruits and so on and so forth. And so what Song of Solomon does is it, it mixes. At times you have a vineyard, and at other times you have a garden. In fact, in what, what it is that we just read, you'll notice there in verse 11, Solomon has a vineyard. Verse 12, my vineyard, my very own, right? So, so, so we just described a actual vineyard, and then we described a metaphorical vineyard later uh, verse 13 oh you who dwell in the gardens whatever whatever this passage means clearly this image is important within song of solomon and as we see if we can get this far we see it in all eight chapters uh, references to vineyards and gardens um uh, 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 clear out all the foxes of our vineyards or my, 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 my uh, groom or the bride is a, is a garden. He comes and eats of his choice fruits, right? This imagery is all over Song of Solomon. And that's not accidental because gardens and vineyards are all over the Bible. And how do we interpret that? Well, first of all, gardens and vineyards are sometimes gardens and vineyards. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you, if you need a seminary education to figure that out or not, but that is true. Sometimes in the Bible, when it describes a garden, it means an actual garden. Sometimes when it describes a vineyard, it just means an actual vineyard. I'll give you a few examples if you don't believe me. 1 Kings 21, Ahab wants to buy Naboth's vineyard because of its proximity to the palace. You remember the story, right? You remember that Naboth says, nuh-uh. Why? Because I inherited it from my father and inherited it from his father. This goes back generations, right? We, we, We get this. If you grew up in a rural area, you get it. This is my grandpappy's farm. His grandpappy gave it to him. You can take it from me, for my cold, dead hands, right? You know, we would get this. You remember the story. What does Jezebel go? Kills him. <laughs> just straight <laughs> up, murders the dude, and his uh, gifts wraps it for uh, Ahab, right? It's a terrible story. But what is the garden there? It's a garden. That's all it is. It's just, just a garden. In the ancient Near Eastern world, royal... Uh, um, well, this leads to, I'm mixing these two. In the ancient Near world, royal gardens were great locations for diplomacy and other matters of states, right? So, so you have gardens, but you also have royal gardens and vineyards, right? And they're, they're both literal ones, but royal gardens play a prominent place in the ancient Near world and the Bible. Again, King Ahab, would and Naboth. We don't have gardens like that per se for like our president, but he would have what we call camps, Camp David is where Jimmy Carter signed the Middle Eastern Deal, for example. Right? You, you, you bring the people of power over, you have a powwow, you figure it out, right? Uh, we we have camps like that. It's I don't really know what they are. I'm guessing it involves a lot of golfing. I don't I don't know, right? I'm I'm not I'm not in, in, in that echelon of society, right? But a, a royal garden would play in that sort of sort of role, but it's still a garden or a vineyard. Thirdly, in the Bible, gardens and vineyards are cultic centers. What do we mean by this? It means they, they were in the ancient years that were long associated with religious and sacred spaces. Okay? So, so you can't separate the row of a garden from uh, the religious experience and beliefs of the people. Let me give you just a few examples in the Bible, prove that I'm not making this up. Judges 9, they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank a reviled Abimelech. You see the connection between the pagan pluralism and the vineyard. The vineyard was the means that enhanced their worship. They got the grapes. You see the connection. Isaiah chapter 65, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. By the way, this was not written three years ago. A people who provoked me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. It's very clear there, right? And, and if you read the Bible, you think about it. You have, it's often mentioned the high places, right? Remember, Josiah destroys all the high places in Israel. The good kings do that. The bad kings build high places. Those, and the reason you have high places, we talk about this in the Lady of Wisdom, is the top of the mountains is where the uh, gods dwelled. When they came down, they came to the top of the mountains. So if you want to go to be with the gods, you've got to go to the top of the mountain. Guess where Eden was? Not in a valley, it was in a mountain. Guess where Jerusalem is, you go up to Jerusalem, there you'll find the temple mounts. Jesus climbs the Mount of Transfiguration, he goes near Mount Hermon, at Caesarea Philippi, and where Peter declares, uh, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. The sermon on the mounts is an important phrase. We, we get this throughout the Bible, there are mounts everywhere. The Samaritans have a mount where they worship God. The mountains are important, why? Because there, because the top of the mountain is a culted center, and as as such, because it is sacred space, where you find the gods, you found life and beauty and, and everything else. So the Garden of Eden is where God dwells with man. The Temple Mound is where God dwells with man. So on and so forth. Fourthly, when it comes to the gardens, a garden is throughout the Bible at various places used as a metaphor. And this is, Clear in Song of Solomon, very clear in Song of Solomon. In fact, the passage that we just saw—I mean, you look at these. Which ones are literal? Which ones are metaphorical? For example, you go back to verse eleven. Solomon had a vineyard about Baal-Harmad. That sounds like a real vineyard, doesn't it? We can just roll with that, I guess, if you want to. We're not going to deeply exegete this, just to sort of look at, it at the surface level. But then you'll notice there, verse twelve: "My vineyard, my very own." Well, you could be talking about it's my property. But it's, it's the bride speaking there. It's a known property. She's talking about her body. She's talking about her love. And so, so, so you can read throughout Song of Solomon, the garden, the vineyard is, is used as, as a metaphor for love or even sexual desire. Let me give you just two examples of this from the text. Song of Solomon chapter 4, uh, "...let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits." Now, I'm not sure it's would be specific as what is being described there, but it's clearly referencing love, love. It could be come to my arms, right? I don't know. It's clearly uh, an intimate moment here between the groom and bride. Chapter five, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. By the way, sister, there's a metaphor. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. By the way, there is the debate that God speaks in Song of Solomon. It's in chapter 5, verse 1, part B. Eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Who's talking there? We don't know. Could be God. Encouraging the two lovers to go into their garden and be together. This is an interesting point there. But clearly, garden is a metaphor. So, so, so you see what the Bible's doing with all this. The Bible opens up with a garden in Eden. It concludes with a garden that is the, the new heavens and the new earth. It's got the tree of life. It's got the rivers flowing from the throne of God. It's got light, though there's no sun. It is, it's, it's got all the imagery where God walks among his people. You open up in a garden, you close in a garden. And what do we have there in the middle? It is not an accident that Jesus enters into a garden and, and is betrayed. It's not an accident there. It is a place where where God's divine saving love is mixed with man's rebellious wickedness. And a climax is there in the garden where he pleads, God, let there be another way. But no, Jesus has to enter into the garden. I don't think that's an accident there. We can take that even farther if you want, but I think that's far enough. Clearly there's something going on with the garden here in Song of Solomon worth exploring. Let's look at a second thing. If garden and vineyards is a one, I think marriage is a sort of obvious theme in the text. We could say, yes, the Bible opens up with a garden and it concludes with a garden. We can equally say the Bible opens up with marriage and it concludes with marriage, which means you can't understand the story of the Bible without seeing marriage at the center. So you open up with the wedding between Adam and Eve, you close with the wedding of Christ and the church. Remember the marriage supper of the Lamb. There would be great feasting, in this garden. So, so, so we, we, we see this already. Hey, Mark, will you check the cry room for me? So, so we, we have the, the theme of, of marriage. And so we have one book that prioritizes marital love. And so in order to understand what is happening on the one end and the other, We need a book that explores the beauty of marital love. Well, uh, consider the parallels between what we see in Song of Solomon and what we have in the garden. Both tell the story of a man and a woman. Both tell the story of a man and a woman who are naked and not ashamed. Both tell the story of a man and a woman, naked and not ashamed, who live in a garden, who are of one flesh and in the end, the Lord is glorified. In fact, you can even come here in chapter eight. Um, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so forgive me if if, if, if I get it wrong. Um, uh, I will get it wrong. See, chapter, is my our wedding passage. Is this it? Uh, I'm just gonna guess here. Chapter eight, verse six. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of Yahweh. You see it there? So you see that God is glorified in this marital gift of love. So you see the parallels between what it is that, that that the writer presents us here mirrors that of Adam and Eve. And what's interesting is they seem to have a similar story as Adam and Eve, as as maybe we'll see, maybe we won't. Okay, so we see the garden and vineyards. We see marriage. Here's the third thing I think worth directing us to when it comes to the gospel. And that is this word desire. Go back to the Garden of Eden. There's a word presented in the Garden of Eden that is used only three times in the Bible. In the Garden, here is the verse that most preachers, particularly male preachers, don't want to touch. Okay, here it is. Uh, To the woman, here's the curse. I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. That part is like obvious, right? Ladies, blame Eve. Okay, just blame me. Right. I'll never forget, this is free, um, when uh, we, we had our, our firstborn, right? And, and my wife and I are super nervous because you're thinking it is impossible to give birth, right? And you have to keep telling yourself, billions of people have done it before my wife, but I'm here to tell you, it is impossible to give birth, right? It just, it just, it's a genuine miracle, uh, labor is. However, I remember when she went into labor, her, her water broke, went into labor, and all that sort of stuff. And I remember her saying, you know what, these women who complain about labor pains, this is nothing. And they hooked her up, waiting on the epidural, right? Then the labor pains came, right? And she's like, and of course, you can see it like, oh, baby's getting bad. It's getting bad. I know, stop. Oh, oh, it's getting better now. It's getting better now. Oh, no, 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 it's getting bad again. I can see the little graph go up, right? I wasn't helpful at all. so we, we get this here in Genesis uh, three, but here's the rest of it. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. Now you want to chase a rabbit and probably offend at least a few people and get a few other people to misunderstand everything you said. Let's talk about the second half of that verse. But I want you to notice here is the issue of desire to rule and to be ruled over. Right? These, these, two, these two ideas I do think there's something there that, that well, I just, I just want to chase this rabbit. But notice here that this is um, a good desire because uh, your desire should be for your husband. But it's a good desire that's gone wrong. Your desire won't be for your husband. It's contrary to him. So he's been given an important charge. But, but a, a, a good desire has been corrupted as a result of the fall. And this is going to create a lot of messes in homes. Well, this word is significant. And one of the reasons we know it's significant is it's rarely used. The second time it's used is in the story of Cain and Abel, the next chapter. It's interesting that this is a curse given to the woman. But in chapter four, it is something played out among a, from a man. So this is a human experience here. So it isn't just women are cursed with this. It's that human beings are cursed with this. Remember the story, right? Uh, God accepts the offering of Abel, but not that of Cain. And and you remember Cain throws a little, little fit, right? Like a little toddler would do. And we find this. If you do well, God says, will you not be accepted? Which means he didn't do good, right? It takes you back to the garden story. If he would just do good, God would be pleased. But he didn't do good, he did bad. And if you do not walk or if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's, there's that word, same word in the Hebrew. Desire is contrary to you. You see, see, it's the same phrase. The curse of the woman is that your desire is contrary to that of your husband. Now, if you give in, sin is crouching at the door. I I think it could be a reference to the serpent, by the way. Its desire is for you but you must rule over. Remember that that humanity was to rule over every beast of the field. And now you see that sin is related to the beast of the field. So so as they were ruled by the serpent, now they're ruled by sin. This word desire is used only one other time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, because Greek is New Testament. And that is in Song of Solomon chapter seven. I'll, I'll put it up here. I am my beloved's. His desire is for me. You think that's significant? I don't think you can understand Song of Solomon without seeing the connections the writer is making to the garden, and it, and, it, and it makes this clear by reminding the reader these two are in a garden, these two are a garden, and they will share their garden with one another. In the context of a garden, be naked and not ashamed. And what we see then is a redemption of desire. See, the problem wasn't desire. It was the motivation of and the practice of it. Desire wrongly applied. Desire wrongly understood. The object of that desire is the problem. If it is to conquer, which I think is what we're hinted at in Genesis 3, or to rule as is hinted at in Genesis 4, then we remain east of Eden. But if our desire is for the good of others, and to receive others as a gift of God, which is best seen in marital love, then what we see is that godly desire actually renews the garden, It takes us west back to the garden. And then you come to the story of Jesus, you you see this all the time, don't you? Where, Where Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem, I must be crucified and I must be raised three days later. What does Peter say? Not on my watch. How does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. The object of your desire is wrong. Here is, if you want to keep my commandments, here it is, love one another. This is how people will know that you are my followers, if you just love one another. Same sort of thing. This is the beauty of gospel love, particularly as as demonstrated in a Christ-centered marriage, that we recover what was the image and the purpose in, of mankind in the garden. Well, in the time that remains, um, let, let me just show this, we've done this before. So I'm sure if you get on uh, on the podcast or, or, or the video stream or something, you, you can find this. Um, quickly turn turn to song of Solomon chapter one just real quickly because I want to show how this looks practically. If, if this is true, right? then that means that the gospel should lie at the center of marriage. And it's the full gospel story we find in marriage. Okay, So um, there are three cycles in Song of Solomon. Let's look at just at the first one. It's the easiest one to, to get. Um, and it's probably my favorite because I think it's really, really practical. And, and a, lot, a lot that we have here we've talked about before. So uh, we won't belabor the point. Um, Song of Solomon has three cycles that follows the same pattern. Okay, And it follows the pattern of alienation, Reconciliation, celebration. This should not be surprising now, should it? If, if, if the gospel story is, is, is at least hinted at in the, song, in, in the song, then it shouldn't surprise us that the narrative that follows it follows a gospel narrative. Because the gospel narrative is one of alienation, sin, reconciliation, redemption, celebration, consummation. In fact, we use the word consummation and don't even think about what it means. Within the context of Song of Solomon, they consummate their marriage in chapter 5. They renew their vows in chapter 7. So, so we see this in the marriage, which becomes a picture of God's relationship with us. There's your allegory, if that helps. Well, let's look just to this is, this is see how, how this works. Chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. By the way, notice wine there a reference to a vineyard. It's all over the place. Once Now that I've shown it to you, you'll see it everywhere. That's been my experience this week. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers, right? So this is the bride speaking. Your Bible probably tells you if it's it's the bride or the groom or the friend, something like that. There's mainly three characters. There's the bride, the groom, and the bride's friends. Here's the joke. You've heard me tell this before and I'm not the first one to tell it. Women only have to win the man. Men have to win the woman and all of her associates. Right, ladies? You're like, oh, I met a good guy. Oh, do tell. Well, let me tell you about this guy. I'm like, mm, girl, you could do better. Guess what? She's she going home thinking, I could do better. Right? You got to win those girls. And they play an important part in, in this story. Right? Uh, and, and you also have to win her brothers. Right? And the dad. Right? There's, there's that too. They come up uh, in chapter 8. But um, but you see here, is, is she's speaking of the king in glowing terms. right? But then notice here in ver, uh, at the rest of verse 4, this is her friend's We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly, do they love you, right? They're saying, oh, you go, girl, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a catch for you. Go, girl. And then verse five, here's how she responds. The groom shows a little bit of interest. Here's what comes out of her mouth. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar." Like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. There's the vineyards again. But my own vineyard I have not kept. You see the metaphor? I kept the vineyards. My vineyards I didn't keep. So what do we have here? We have a woman who is outside a lot, which means she is more tanned. And what is her response when a guy takes notice of her, particularly a guy of Solomon's uh, 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 socioeconomic status? Oh, I'm not like all the other girls. You've got better options. I'm just not attractive enough for you. She looks in the mirror and, and she's quite ashamed of, of, of what she sees. Ladies, do not this sound familiar? Yeah, it's frustrating for us guys, by the way. Right? I have to tell men all the time, like, you do know I had pretty high standards for a wife, right? Right, And you, you exceed them all. I've told you this now for almost 23 years. Right. Anyways, we'll come to that here in a minute. But this is Cinderella's story, isn't it? My mother's sons were angry at me and, and made me work. So, so you see the alienation? She cannot easily receive the affection that is offered to her from the groom because of what she sees in the mirror, or how she feels that day, or whatever it is. It's alienation. He is moving this direction. She's moving the opposite direction. They're they're being torn apart. It's like the Garden of Eden. The minute their eyes were opened, they were separated and they covered themselves. That covering is like shame. Here, she experiences shame and she's wanting to separate herself from this guy who notices her. It's the story of alienation. Well, what does the groom do? Whether it's Solomon or someone else, it's a matter of debate regarding the author. But but, uh, what does the groom do? Well, he's not going to take no for an answer. Good for him, right? So, so he, he goes and pursues her, right? Because his argument is the Shulamite woman, the, the bride here, meets his standard of beauty. That is his message. Like, your opinion about yourself is not what I'm getting at. I'm trying to get you to see my opinion of you. You are the standard of beauty, You've got to see that, right? You are the standard of beauty. And, and of course, if we can pause here at a pastoral point, this is a two-way street. He is looking at no other woman. Secondly, she is looking to impress no other man. Well, that would give me enough trouble. Let's move on. He is notice, audibly and patiently generous to this, this, the children. We've talked about this when we looked at Song of Solomon. She is visually generous to him. He is audibly generous to her. Why? Because men and women are different. She needs three things from him in this text, right? Because they're in the middle of alienation. Sin and shame is, is, is affecting the relationship. The first, she needs his presence. Men who are absent damage their relationships. Men who are absent-minded damaged their relationships, right? He hears what she has to say. He tries to understand things from her perspective. The main thing here is he is present with her. He is listening to her. Not just his presence, but he also gives her his patience. He doesn't cut her off. He doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't ignore her because they've already had this conversation. You know, one of the things I've found about men and women, you all can correct me at the, at the end if you want to, Is I found in marriage, I have to repeat myself a thousand times to my wife what I've told her for 23 years. You are beautiful. I love you. I love the dress. I'll give you an example today. Don't tell her I said this. So they're at my brother-in-law's birthday party, family doing a whole ocean dig and all this sort of stuff. Well, um, she was wearing what she wore this morning, but with shorts. And I went and she goes, what do you think of this? And you look fine. Been on the hippie side, but you look fine. She goes... So you think I looked like a hippie this morning? I said, "Did I say you've looked like a hippie all day?" No, I didn't say that. I said, "With the shorts, you look a bit of a hippie." There's nothing wrong with that. The '60s are coming back, just real quick. Put up, do this for me, real quick right? And, and let me say something about Jenny. I'm, I'm being goofy here, right? But how many times, men, you've had to say, uh, you look great in that dress. I love you in that outfit. You are beautiful the way you are. I, I find you just, just beautiful and gorgeous, and you run out of adjectives, right? How many times, ladies, do you have to tell your husband something, like in terms of an act of, of respect and appreciation? One time, he'll remember it for 20 years. He'll remember it forever, Remember forever. I've shared this, you know, more private conversation. I'll say, let me tell you, the moment I loved my wife the most, it was at a, was a low moment, I won't give the details, it was a low moment, and the way she responded was an act of respect and love to me. I'll never forget it. If the roles were switched, I'd have to repeat that every 10 minutes, right? Right? Now, now notice, remember, right Now, I'm, you guys are getting mad at me. Women are verbal, and they communicate through, 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 audibly. And so he is, he is constantly being patient and he's reminding her of, 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 of what she needs to know that that is true. And he doesn't try to fix it. That, that's a whole nother thing. Finally, his praise. He reminds her again and again why she is beautiful to him. So that's the alienation with the reconciliation, right? They are alienated as a result of shame has entered into the relationship, the Garden of Eden reconciliation comes through his leadership in, in this instance. Later, she, she will take the lead uh, because she, she's really the cause of the alienation. Um, but notice the celebration, chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And of course, we're doing a lot of skipping here. But her friends come along and they, they go shopping with her and all that sort of stuff. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the latest. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Behold, the winter has passed. Can we just pause there for a one? Notice she's, she, it's her speaking what he has said to her. Come along, my beloved, my beautiful one. Well, that's not the same girl in chapter one, is it? Doesn't sound like it. You see alienation, reconciliation celebration you see the thing that's a gospel thing we could do the same thing the the the, the second uh, cycle is uh, it, it starts in uh, chapter 3 verse 1 she has a nightmare she cannot find her beloved uh, they reconcile at the wedding chapter 3 verse 5 through 11 and they the celebration is is the uh, 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 consummation of that that marriage chapter 4 uh going all the way through even the chapter 5, verse 1. And then the third cycle starts in chapter 5, verse 2, as she rejects him at night, uh, which then leads that the two are united, reunited in a garden, by the way, chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, we see the celebration, the marriage intimacy. Chapter 7 is the most erotic part of the entire book. So you see, it is alienation, reconciliation, celebration. What is the gospel story? It is a story of alienation, reconciliation, celebration. At the garden, we were alienated from our God. And throughout the story of the Bible that we've looked at for the last few weeks on Sunday mornings is the reconciliation part. God has come down to dwell with his people as if the garden had been remade. And as we saw today, he's no longer veiled behind a thick cloud, but rather he's with his people, he invites them in. And that climax is ultimately in Christ who makes reconciliation by being the, the, the Savior and the sacrifice, that by faith we are reconciled to the God that we have brought shame and guilt upon ourselves. And how does the Bible end? Celebration. Jesus enjoys a dinner with his followers. And he says, we will not eat of this again until I come in my kingdom. And there, what is it we find in his kingdom? A wedding and a garden of a marriage between man and woman. Well, they will feast and celebrate forever and ever. That's why this book ends the way that it does. It's hopeful. It's promising. These two have found love. And where is that love? It is in Solomon's vineyard. It is those who dwell in the gardens. Listen to my voice. Sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Make haste. Be like the gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. You can't understand this love poem without first coming to the empty tomb. For there, our love story was written. If only we would believe. If only we would repent. And walk hand in hand with our beloved. That's probably enough for today. Let's pray. And we'll be dismissed. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. What a beautiful picture.